Contented Media presents Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, an original podcast series with Mark Hunter and Arthur Van Pelt. Hello and welcome to a special episode of Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto, the podcast that sifts the silt that is the Craig Wright story, identifying the lumps of gold and shining them up for the world to see. My name is Mark Hunter, writer, astrophysicist and creator of the rectangular wheel, and wading into the murky waters with me is the founder and secretary of the Craig Wright fan club, Arthur Van Pelt. How are you doing, sir? I'm fine, (laughs) Mark. Thanks. Excellent stuff. This episode has been a long time coming, so I'm quite excited to finally be able to get around to it. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. Now, in this special episode, we're covering the libel trial of Peter McCormack, which ended this week, more than three years after it was first filed by Craig Wright. The case is so extraordinary and does so much to highlight Craig Wright's staggering incompetence when it comes to legal matters that rather than simply giving you the ending and discussing it, we're going to spend some time to go through the entire history of the case, a history that makes the ending even more extraordinary once you know what Craig Wright tried to get away with. Are you ready, Arthur? Uh, Yes, sir. I think this is going to be one of our hottest uh, episodes. Oh, I think so. I certainly think so. Right, let's crack on. Wright launched legal proceedings against McCormack on April 17, 2019, citing 10 occasions where McCormack had put out tweets that denied that Wright was Satoshi Nakamoto in various ways, seeking £100,000 in damages and a formal apology. Wright's filing claimed that McCormack's tweets had caused and or was likely to cause serious harm to his reputation, with his legal team adding that they, the tweets, go to the heart of his, Wright's, personal reputation for honesty and ethical conduct, and, given his involvement within the cryptocurrency industry, to the heart of his professional reputation. They also claim that, in addition to the serious harm caused to his reputation by the publication and republication of the publications complained of, the claimant has suffered considerable distress and embarrassment. As we will see when it comes to the hearing regarding this case, if there's one person causing distress and embarrassment to Craig Wright, it's Craig Wright. The particulars of the claim were served on May the 1st, at which time McCormack had no legal representation and failed to file an acknowledgement of service or defence. This left the door open to Wright to enter a default judgement. As we'll see, however, he chose not to do this, a decision that came back to haunt him. Instead, Wright pursued McCormack to court, with numerous lawyers then coming to McCormack's aid and offering their services. Eventually, McCormack went with London firm RPC, having had them recommended on the strength of their performance in libel cases. McCormack's defence, when it came, was manifold, starting with the notion that the tweets had been cherry-picked from long threads and were therefore stripped of context. Another argument, and one that would come to prove seminal in the trial, was that Wright had no good reputation to start with. He was chiefly known as the man who had failed to prove he was Satoshi Nakamoto three years previously. McCormack argued that the burden of proof was on Wright to prove that it was his, McCormack's, tweets, not anyone else's tweets or Wright's past actions that caused serious harm to Wright's reputation. There were also a couple of belters laid down by McCormack's lawyers in the defence, weren't there, Arthur? Yeah, you can say that again. Uh, 
<laughs> Although the outcome of this uh, defense was predictable, there was no follow-up. Because, uh, yeah, look at uh, what Peter's counsel said. I'm going to give you a few uh, direct quotes. We invite your client to provide to our client on a voluntary basis the proof that he is Satoshi Nakamoto, which he and Kelvin Air on his behalf have indicated that they possess and will produce in these proceedings. We refer you to paragraph 20 of the defense. Our client is prepared to walk away from these proceedings without any contribution to his costs incurred so far. If your client provides satisfactory and independently verifiable proof that he is Satoshi, our client would also in that event be prepared to make a public statement withdrawing the allegation that your client's claim to be Satoshi is fraudulent. This is, after all, what your client has been publicly promising and conspicuously failing to do since May 2016. It is correspondingly what our client, along with a great many other commentators, has been inviting him to do. Should your client decline, once again, to come good on his promise by providing the requested proof within 21 days, he will need to give a very convincing explanation as to a why he declines to do so, and b, exactly when he intends or expects to provide the proof. Well, it is pretty clear why this defense uh, had no follow-up, because Mr. Wright has no proof whatsoever to deliver. We didn't hear much more until March 2020, when McCormack tweeted that the master, the person who oversees the early stages of such trials, had asked, why can't Mr. Wright just provide proof that he was Satoshi? Why indeed? McCormack added that he had even offered £250,000 plus an apology on bended knee if Craig signs the private keys as he did for Matonis and Gavin. Of course, Wright now claims that doing this would prove nothing as keys don't prove identity, despite leaning on this precise crutch in 2016. It's worth noting that while Craig Wright might not believe that keys prove identity, the judge seemingly might have done, and by doing so Wright could seal the deal for more money than he was asking, and get his apology into the bargain. Unless that is of course for some reason he couldn't do it. Later in 2020, CoinGeek was informed by Ontier that one of McCormack's financial backers, Tether, had withdrawn its funding for him before posting an interesting theory. One has to wonder what McCormack and Tether saw in Discovery that sapped all enthusiasm for standing by McCormack's accusations, but the obvious answer is that they now know they can no longer claim that Craig Wright is a fraud by claiming to have invented Bitcoin. It is very clear from these actions that Tether has confirmed Craig is Satoshi. Tether lawyer Stuart Hogener rebuffed this claim the next day, stating that this is a lie, Tether supports Peter McCormack and believes he's in the right. This support didn't run to financial support, however, which they did indeed pull, and McCormack was left with no choice but to abandon his defence at the end of October. This left Wright's team with an open goal. All they had to do was file to have a summary judgment made in Wright's favour, and the case would be won. Arthur, what happened at the judgment hearing regarding this in November 2020? <laughs> I always make the joke here that... Um... Simon Cohen, which is the, the lead in, in uh, Craig's counsel at uh, Ontier, he blames the the intern for this type of uh, mistakes. So what happened, and let me find the quote, 
Uh, however, a discrepancy between the initial claim form and subsequent filings regarding the timestamps of the publication being complained of meant that the judge declined to grant a summary judgment application. So what happened? They put the tweets in an, uh, in a certain order, and I think a certain dates of those tweets were mixed up. So it meant that the the exhibits were not correctly uh, referenced. Yeah, and that uh, that was noticed by the judge. So he said, yeah, I cannot uh, go forward with this. Wright was given leave to refile for a straightforward victory, with the next hearing set for February 2021, where Wright and CoinGeek were confident the case would be all but wrapped up in favour of the plaintiff. However, the break had given McCormack time to gather resources for another try at defending himself, and like a beardy Bedfordian Lazarus, he rose once again to file thousands of pages of evidence that echoed similar statements written by others that Wright was a fraud. In this hearing, McCormack also amended his overall defence, taking out the defences of truth, public interest and abusive process, leaving just the issue of serious harm, which Wright claimed he had suffered at the hands of McCormack's Twitter account. Arthur, why did McCormack cut back his defence so much? Yeah, basically that was a uh, decision based on uh, his available budget. And uh, yeah, allow me to uh, use a quote of Hollenot, because he is also on the receiving end of a libel case uh, against uh, Craig Wright in the UK, as we all know, of course. Uh, this trial is in 2023 somewhere. Uh, and, and he summarized this nicely in, an, in a recent uh, tweet uh, that I found. The difference between a serious harm only and a full truth defense is two days in court versus three to four weeks in court. The cost difference is immense, as in millions of dollars. But uh, budget uh, or the lack thereof was the only reason that Peter dropped uh, the truth defense. And it was confirmed in some court ruling uh, that we know from uh, last year, uh, October, where he said, for the avoidance of doubt, my belief in the strength of my defense, uh, in the form set out in my amended defense served on the 18th of March of 2020, has not changed throughout the litigation. I would, if I could afford it, continue to maintain my defenses to the claim. Yeah, I mean, that makes absolute sense. He's already on the hook for a lot of money, so you need to try and kind of cut things back where you can. Um, but CoinGeek didn't like that argument, did they? What do we find in their reporting? We find in that same CoinGeek uh, article uh, the quote, McCormack lost the financial support of Theater after a discovery process in which Dr. Wright produced over 9,000 documents, which it can be assumed were mostly concerned with refuting McCormack's argument that the publications in question were true. Whatever was contained in those documents apparently was enough evidence of Wright's credibility to cause them to abandon the case. Well, I can only respond in, in, in one way uh, to this. First, uh, I'm not sure if 9,000 is uh, is the right number here, because I've also uh, read and seen the numbers of uh, around 20 to 25,000 uh, floating around, perhaps picked up from sources close to uh, Peter McCormick, but I'm not sure about that. But at all times, this is not a genuine reflection of the truth, as it wasn't the Satoshi evidence that was impressive, it was the budget needed to debunk all the forgeries that was shockingly high. And meanwhile, I also remember that Peter tweeted ironically that Craig had filed an amazing amount of Satoshi evidence, but that irony was completely missed uh, by the Craig Wright camp. Mm, shock horror. Yeah. <laughs> 
And part of uh, Peter Struth's defense was also several historical pieces of evidence since 2015, where Craig Wright was determined a fraud. But due to how English law works, this wasn't allowed something dingle ruling, I remember. However, Peter's counsel managed to get something about uh, Craig's fraudulent history, mentioned anyway later. Amazingly, CoinGeek even had the gall to say this about the case in July 2021. In a way, McCormack is unlucky. Being based in the UK, it would have been very difficult for him to avoid the inside of a courtroom versus Dr. Wright. Well, Ontier could have made it much easier for him by checking the dates on Wright's exhibit filings. So with the case most definitely back on a month after McCormack thought the whole thing was over, all eyes turned to discovery. Wright scored a huge win when the judge ruled that all but one of the pillars McCormack had planned to use for his renewed defence were ripped away, leaving him with only one remaining pillar. That his tweets did not cause serious harm to Craig Wright. McCormack was denied permission to appeal this ruling not once but twice over the next three months, leaving him staring down the barrel of a gun. A gun that Wright was busy loading, telling his followers in October 2021, I wonder if people understand just how easy it will be to roll over the McCormack wannabes when he is done. Permanent bans on all social media. Costs. Damages. I really don't think people understand the cost of their actions. They will. A few days later, he referred to the McCormack case as a mopping up exercise, labelling the podcast host as stupid and easily misled a few months later. Calvin Eyre, however, didn't buy this, retreading his favourite trope of a huge conspiracy against Wright and BSV by claiming that McCormack is paid to be part of a massive passing off fraud named BTC and knows full well that this is fraud and that Craig Wright is Satoshi. This narrative feeds into Ayer's ongoing belief, which doesn't seem to extend to Wright to the same extent, at least not publicly, that anyone who says or does anything against Wright or BSV is being paid or otherwise incentivized to do so, regardless of the logistical merits of such a theory, never mind the theoretical. Needless to say, the same rhetoric surrounding the imminent defeat and subjugation of Peter McCormack was repeated throughout the BSV echo chamber with glee. On the eve of the trial, it was clear that McCormack's odds were still stacked against him, partly because of the vagaries of the British legal system when it comes to libel and slander, which are about as favourable to the claimant as you can get, which is one of the reasons why Wright chose UK-based entities to sue. These vagaries were handily outlined by Bitcoin security expert Kim Nielsen in April 2021. The fact is that UK libel law is notoriously broken and open to abuse by claimants, to the point where libel tourism is a thing. Wright easily engineered a situation where, with the full blessing of the court, it would cost McCormack millions of pounds to get to the truth. So the other party is blatantly abusing the process to make things as financially painful as possible for you, while the supposedly neutral court just looks on and effectively blocks you from arguing the truth unless you spend everything you've ever owned or made on lawyers. If you do bet everything, the case will be heard by the same court that found this whole outrageous setup perfectly fine to begin with. And even if you win, you might not recover all your costs. Put simply, the system is firmly on the well-funded claimant's side here. 
it is entirely understandable why McCormack under such circumstances would drop expensive defences and focus on some single cheaper, and thus less risky, line of defence, even if we all know the truth. Who would gamble everything when the game has been clearly rigged against you? Nilsson also neatly summarised Wright's modus operandi in such cases. Wright's whole strategy is basically to produce so much material that it becomes prohibitively expensive to explore it in court. This attritional style of legal battle is designed to batter the opponent into submission until they can no longer afford to run the case, which of course is a fate McCormack initially suffered. Therefore, anything less than a win for Wright could, with some justification, be laid at the feet of his incompetent legal team. Arthur, what was the impact of the removal of the argument of truth as it relates to Wright claiming he's Satoshi? Yeah, let's be honest, when the truth-finding part uh, is gone, then Craig cannot be declared Satoshi anymore by anyone. Or, way more likely, of course, he cannot be declared not Satoshi anymore. <laughs> And in a sense, this is of course a pity, but luckily we still have uh, the Hoddlenot case uh, going on uh, in Norway. Uh, there's Copa chasing Craig for uh, you're not Satoshi, you have no rights on anything Bitcoin. But um, yeah, from here, Peter only concentrates on the serious harm. It's probably better to say there was no serious harm in defense. With Wright seemingly holding all the aces and the burden falling much more on McCormack's team than his, the countdown to the three-day hearing in May began, with opening statements to be heard on May 23rd in front of Mr Justice Chamberlain. However, almost on the literal eve of the trial, we got wind of some astonishing bombshells regarding Wright's defence. Arthur, what were these bombshells? Oh yeah, oh I remember that. Amazing, amazing. There was quite a bit of turmoil around uh, 10 pieces of evidence that Craig Wright uh, pulled uh, just before trial. As Craig claimed that he was rejected from uh, around 10 conferences based on Peter McCormick's uh, libelous tweets, but that turned out to be uh, yeah, a completely fabricated story. So after Craig pulled these 10 exhibits from the trial uh, last minute, Craig had no real-life evidence anymore of explicit and provable serious harm. Now, we'll go into these in more detail very soon, but what makes me laugh here is that statement from CoinGeek about Tether pulling its support for McCormack when they saw something in Wright's evidence hall that scared them. And yet, here's McCormack very much in court, and Craig Wright is the one who's pulling back based on McCormack's evidence. How's that for double standards? Yeah, it's, it was the perfect example how Craig Wright is uh, rolling. He's making things up and pulling them uh, with a lame excuse when it fails. And yeah, talking about double standards, you will never hear Quang Geek about this stuff. Oh no, no chance. The opening statements on May 23rd revealed that the claims made by Wright were in relation to the 10 tweets initially complained about, plus an appearance by McCormack on a live stream with someone called Hotep Jesus. Arthur, what do we know of this Hotep Jesus guy and his audience reach? Yeah, to be fair, I didn't know this Hotep uh, guy, to be honest, but uh, as a preparation for this uh, podcast, I uh, quickly checked on him. Uh, he has on uh, YouTube uh, almost 70,000 followers, and on Twitter even more, actually, 240,000. So yeah, it, uh, he has some outreach. Yeah, it's, it's not too bad, and it's actually understandable why Craig Wright's team were, were using that as evidence, isn't it? Yeah, yeah I, would, uh, I would say so. 
I remember though that uh, the libelous part was at the end of the podcast and then Peter's counsel would uh, claim that um, Mm -hmm. hardly anyone was listening at that moment anymore. McCormack's team began by moving to have the case dismissed given Wright's sudden withdrawal of her huge part of his claim, stating that Wright was amending the most serious part of his case and that his witness statement about serious harm is false and is willfully misleading the court. They also added that the defence says that the claimant cannot overcome the hurdle of serious harm and so moves to dismiss the claim. The judge wasn't overly moved by this and said he would consider it after the day's proceedings. Given that things ran into day two, we can confidently say he didn't consider it for too long. According to witnesses, when Wright took the stand, his face looked swollen and puffy. This seems to be a reaction to stress, as we saw it in evidence when he was interviewed on camera by Rory Kathleen Jones in 2016 in that famous claim and not a claim to be Satoshi. His voice also appeared to be very weak as he took an oath on the Bible, in stark contrast to his bombastic rhetoric when he's behind the keyboard. McCormack's barrister, Catherine Evans, immediately honed in on the fact that Wright had changed his story days after receiving the witness statements, having had full faith in it for over 18 months. Wright contested that he had initially believed that overseas conferences counted in his suit, but realised just weeks before the trial that in fact they do not matter and could not be used in the lawsuit. This is despite him using those very same conferences as the basis for his summary judgment claim in 2020, when apparently they did matter. Wright's witness statement had included the following allegation. At the time, I was at a stage of developing my academic career in England by publishing recent academic papers I've written. The 10 conferences all withdrew their invites for me to attend and present my papers, which had been accepted by them following a blind peer review basis because of the defamatory lies being spread about me by Mr McCormack across social media and his encouragement of others to do the same. Due to the conference invite withdrawals, my papers were not published and I've not been able to get to the academic standing I needed to be at by this point in England to pursue teaching and other academic opportunities. Ms Evans then prompted Wright to reaffirm his statement that he had papers accepted at all the 10 conferences he had said he'd been disinvited from, with Wright arguing that he didn't mean they were all conference papers, but that they included journal articles as well, saying that he forgets people are not academics. The first conference up for discussion was a conference in Hanoi, which had been organised by a Professor Darwazé. Ms Evans revealed that not only had Wright's paper, called Operating System for Blockchain IoT Devices, been rejected by the blind review panel, it had received the lowest possible score, 1 out of 5, a score afforded it by all three reviewers, and which indicated that the work was of a questionable nature and carried severe flaws. Incidentally, this score was so bad as to be labelled extremely unusual by one reviewer, with Professor Darwazé stating that it is clear from the reviews that there are many reasons it would have been rejected immediately and without further consideration. Other criticisms about this particular paper were that it was written as a patent not as a paper and had very little in the way of technical detail. The reason for this is probably because it was a patent, one that Wright filed back in 2016 and that took five years to get approved. Another reviewer stated that the bigger part has been taken directly from two documents from the same author and neither of these is cited in the paper. 
Overall, the paper's contribution to the field was judged to be marginal or limited, its novelty minor, and the quality of presentation for the conference unacceptable. Incredibly, Wright rejected the opinion of the experts in court, saying that he did not accept the reasons given by Professor Darwazay as to why the paper was rejected. Wright was informed by email of this rejection on February 15, 2019, over a year before signing a witness statement to say that it was Peter McCormack's fault that he, Wright, was uninvited from the conference. But he had an excuse for that. The email which I have just shown you, the link that it has in the body of it, although obviously you cannot link on this piece of paper, do you accept that you received that email? I would need to check. I do not know. Do you accept that had you received it, you would have clicked on the link to read the reviews? Not necessarily, no. Why not? Because I do not always do that. The paper ended up being published. The claims that was technically in error because Bitcoin cannot do more than four or five transactions a second are completely false. They are claims that because of the version of BTC that is not Bitcoin, that the defendant is falsely promoting rather than Bitcoin, which can do billions of transactions a second. So, because of information that has been misleadingly said about Bitcoin, people have a false idea. Do you accept that this email, even if you do not remember receiving it, do you accept that the date shows you it was sent before Mr. McCormack's first tweet? Yes, that is before then. Arthur, that all makes perfect sense actually, because if I was trying to grow my academic career and I applied to speak at a conference, the success or otherwise of which depended on a peer review of one of my papers, I think I would definitely ignore an email from the conference organiser with the review of that paper. And even if it somehow bypassed me, I would also completely fail to follow up with the conference organiser if I hadn't heard anything. I mean, that's just standard practice, isn't it? <laughs> We know this guy for so long already, uh, Mark. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I'm sure that Craig's next excuse is that his former assistant who was fired for stealing office supplies hacked his email program and reported the email address as a spam address. So Craig missed many emails, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, we can, we can expect anything, any crazy excuse from Craig. We certainly can. Ms. Evans moved on to write dealings with Dr. Thu Tra Win of the Conservatoire des Arts et Métiers in Paris, CNAM for short, who Wright said had informally invited him to speak at a number of conferences, including another in Hanoi, engagements he was then uninvited from in the wake of McCormack's tweets and the live stream. Except there was just one problem. She had never heard of him. Dr. Wright, have you seen Dr. Wynne's witness statement of Friday, which we served on your solicitors? Yes. And do you accept that she says in that witness statement that she has no recollection of ever having met you, communicated with you, or come across you at CNAM or anywhere else? She says that, does she not? I accept that she made a mistake. She has no idea who you are, correct? No, it is not correct. She also says in her witness statement, does she not, that she did not invite you to any of the conferences, including Hanoi. She says that. Are you saying she's not telling the truth? I'm saying she does not recollect. When did Dr. Wynne invite you? Back at that stage, I was going on a very regular basis to and from Paris. I do not remember which particular time I met. I put it to you again that this is not true. Her evidence, Dr. Wynne's evidence, is that she has never heard of you, she never met, and she has certainly not invited you to any conference. She can say she does not recall. 
She does not say she does not recall. She said she has never met you, never communicated with you before, and she does not know who you are. That is an error. This is the first witness statement of Dr. Wynne. In it, she says, I have no recollection of ever having met, communicated with, or come across Mr. Wright at CNAM or elsewhere. She continues, I did not organise the Hanoi Conference. In fact, I have never organised a conference relating to telecoms or communications. For that reason, I can be certain I did not invite Mr. Wright to the Hanoi Conference as he claims. I was not involved in organising the IEE Conference at Paris or Montreal or the Second Ho Chi Minh City Conference. I reiterate that I do not know Mr. Wright and did not extend an invite to him to the Paris Conference, the Montreal Conference, the First Ho Chi Minh City Conference or the Second Ho Chi Minh City Conference. I have never organised a conference outside of Vietnam. She also says, if I had invited Mr. Wright to a conference, this would always be concluded and confirmed by email. This is essential for any invitation to speak at a conference in Vietnam because it is not possible for foreigners to apply for a visa to Vietnam without a written invitation. I am confident if I had invited Mr. Wright to either Hanoi or the Ho Chi Minh City conferences, I would have confirmed the invitation in writing. Wright's excuse for this was that he no longer has access to his CNAM email account, suggesting that there might be an invite, and then presumably an uninvite, from Dr. Wynne sitting in his in-tray, despite her insistence that she never sent them. Wright added that it was strange to me that someone has forgotten me, to which Miss Evans had to remind him, again, that she hadn't forgotten him, she was sure she had never met him in the first place. Attention then turned to an Istanbul conference where Wright's paper was again given a grade of 1, with the reviewer stating that the paper contains major weaknesses in both technical content and presentation style, noting that it didn't even include a conclusion section and that most of the references are very old. Another reviewer noted that the submitted paper had an abstract that was identical to another, different paper. When asked if he accepted that the paper was rejected based on the points raised, Wright again declared that he didn't, stating that, I think that it was rejected because it was not understood, and the other abstract was actually another paper that I'd put in, a different version of the same paper. Arthur, here we have Craig Wright mixing up abstracts from papers and just sending these things off willy-nilly. This isn't the behaviour of someone who's desperately trying to forge an academic career, is it? Yeah, it looks pretty weird, uh, doesn't it? Yeah, but let's be honest, it, it, it's again just a lame excuse uh, to distract from uh, what really happened. He got caught lying and he's trying to wiggle, or should I say wriggle, his way out of it Yeah, without giving any evidence uh, of his new uh, plot twist. Regarding a conference in Seville, Wright claimed he submitted a paper through his now inaccessible CNAM email account, claiming that the exact word I received from one academic when reviewing some of the notes of this paper was wow. Wright claims that following McCormack's tweets he never heard back despite this glowing review, although strangely there is no evidence of Wright ever providing the organisers with any kind of paper, let alone one that would make them go wow. Next up was a Budapest conference, where the submitted paper received a comment of basically this is a good example of plagiarism. Wow, indeed. Wright claimed that the paper was accepted when submitted by someone else at Enchain, although no name was offered as to who this might have been, and no evidence was provided to support it. 
Amazingly, Wright pushed two more piles of cat vomit that were supposed to pass for academic papers on the poor Istanbul conference organisers, one of which was dismissed because, among other failings, it didn't have a discussion or conclusion section, and as a result appeared to have been prepared in a hurry. The third paper contained many errors and flaws. Wright finally acknowledged this rejection in his witness statement, although, of course, none of this was his fault, saying... I note these email rejections came after publication of the first of the ten publications complained of. Arthur, correct me if I'm wrong here, but is Wright suggesting that these people reviewed his paper, gave it a fantastic mark, read Peter McCormack's tweets, and then revised their gradings and marked him down because of what the tweets said? That's how you should read it, (laughs) Mark. But... (laughs) It's too hilarious to even respond to, and it's an unproven suggestion also. So, crazy. As if this whole thing wasn't stupid enough, Craig Wright tried to claim that the reviews were incomplete because of grammatical errors, when in fact it was because he didn't read the email properly. Read the top part again and tell me what you meant when you said you thought it was unusual. It's an incomplete sentence, there's no full stop, and it's not grammatically correct and your paper. I think what you're not seeing is that after the words and your paper, it says submission ID 147 title. Do you see that? I do. Then it carries on, has been rejected. So although the sentence has been broken up by that reference to submission 147 for the title, it is a complete sentence, and the reasons are set out below in the reviewer's comments. Do you accept that now? As I originally stated, generally you would actually have the rejection notes and other such things in more detail, and you would not have something like that. So it is rushed, it is hurried. So no, I do not, especially when some of the same people reviewed the same paper and published it when it did not have my name on it. Wright went on to state that he enjoyed a kind of resurgence in 2022, with conference bookings coming out of his ears, but apparently there's a reason for this. Once my name was cleared in a Florida court where the jury found I did not commit fraud, suddenly, when people are not afraid anymore, I'm being invited more than monthly and the number of conferences is just increasing. Arthur, it is true, Craig Wright is doing a lot of conferences now, all regarding this IPv6 and Bitcoin integration, but there is a big difference in the conferences that he was supposedly applying for, but not really applying for, and the ones he's actually doing, isn't there? Yeah, that is part of the story, uh, I think. Maybe it's not only low-quality conferences, but what also plays a role is that uh, it are conferences that allow speakers when someone pays a substantial sponsor amount. I remember a few years ago when he was in China sitting on a stage uh, and admitting to his Chinese audience that he indeed is paying uh, to speak at conferences, so it was already going on. Uh, I'm not sure if that was in 2019 or before, but he indeed admitted that they were paying for him uh, to get him on stage, because for example, the IEEE, they give away a speaking slot in return of a gold sponsorship of $10,000. So it wouldn't surprise me to find out someday that Calvin Aragon uh, is paying $10,000 for uh, Craig Wright to speak at the IEEE uh, conference uh, somewhere. 
We also got a nice flavour of exactly how Wright has netted so many conference spots when he stated that since his fallow period, he does not now go through the normal process that most people do in getting the gigs, adding further that none of them, the application processes, have formed the normal EDAS process. Probably just as well for him. Wright's evisceration did not end in Budapest, with two more conferences then addressed, those organised by Dr Wynne, with Wright once again professing his shock that she didn't remember him. He also took umbrage at the fact that Dr Wynne referred to him as Mr Wright when I am known as Dr Wright. In fact, Mr Wright, you're known by lots of other, very different names. Wright then claimed he had got confused between two New York conferences, one that he had originally said he was disinvited from on the back of McCormack's tweets, and another one that, in fact, he never submitted a paper to at all. Wright addresses this in his third witness statement, saying, Although I cannot recall exactly why I originally believed that I had been disinvited to this conference, I am informed by Ontier and believe that it was taking place at the same time as I was finalising my reply to the defence in these proceedings, so it's possible that that was the source of my confusion. Arthur, this one is an absolute belter. It seems to me that Wright is saying that he listed the New York conference as one of the ones that he was invited to and then disinvited from due to Peter McCormack's tweets. But now he says he can't remember why he was disinvited and seems to have been confused between two conferences because of one that was going on in a different part of the world while he was writing a reply to some defence motion. Have I got that right? This is... uh also a clear example of how seriously he is taking uh, court cases because if you make up a witness statement and you have to be truthful in such a witness statement you go find every email every note every word that you uh, typed about it everything that has to do with it and you try to make up a timeline and uh, an exact time frame and the people that you've spoken with and you work that out accordingly and truthfully to put it in your witness statement to make it perfectly clear that it was indeed a tweet of uh, Peter McCormack that caused uh, the harm. But yeah, we know now from all these things that you just mentioned that it was either those people had never even heard of Craig Wright or blind peer review of his papers uh, found that his papers were plagiarized uh, garbage. So it's all made up by Craig Wright. Full stop. He produced no witness testimony from anybody, did he, to say that they rejected him based on the tweets? He just said they did. Yeah, he just makes up 10 bullet points and all 10 uh, got uh, debunked. So he lost uh, the part of having uh, actual uh, exhibits and, and evidence. And the only thing that remained from there on was that they implied uh, serious harm. It's also worth reporting how Wright himself addressed the New York confusion in court when asked to explain this. His reply was... There was another conference in America. Unfortunately, rather than the correct conference, I put the wrong one down. Let's not forget here that all these mistakes, all these things that have been removed for one reason or another, were all part of Wright's initial motion for summary judgment, which, if it had been filed correctly, would have won him the case without any of this coming to light. His entire case was based upon this complete tissue of lies and fabrications, and he was a couple of timestamps away from getting it. Arthur, Craig Wright didn't present any evidence in this case, just as he didn't provide any evidence in the Cobra Bitcoin case. 
And in fact, it's a bit of a shame that Cobra Bitcoin wasn't able or, or chose not to fight his case because he could have had the same result here, couldn't he? Yeah, indeed. Just <laughs> lean back and let it come at you and start debunking. But yeah, on the other hand, uh, Cobra Bitcoin uh, might have come into the same situation as uh, Peter McCormack, that it uh, would have been a very costly um, truth uh, defense. Let's bear this concept of evidence not being questioned in mind when we come to Wright's claims over the last conference on the list, the Lisbon Conference. Here is Wright's revised witness statement on the matter. I do not recall the details of the Lisbon Conference, except that I know I was due to speak at it, and then I wasn't. I do not recall the details of when I was invited or when the invitation was withdrawn. I did not submit a peer review paper to this conference. I ended up going to Lisbon, but not because of the conference. I took my wife separately and we had a few days away there ourselves. So, do I remember all the details of that conference? No. Three years and a lot of work and a lot of other things later, I do not have perfect recollection. Arthur, this is just absolutely staggering nonchalance from someone who is determined to financially cripple someone, isn't it? Yeah, it absolutely is. As I said before, in, in a court case, you are requested to bring your most genuine, truthful evidence. But yeah, since Greg doesn't have that uh, to the slightest, uh, he comes up with a made-up story that never survives any serious scrutiny, not in public and certainly not in court. So that's why you see him uh, repeatedly being called out for his false stories, both outside courts and, and inside courts. Wright also offered an insight into just how seriously he takes cases such as slander and defamation, claiming that he himself didn't draft his first witness statement, but that his lawyers did. When reminded that they drafted it on his instructions, Wright said, Instructions that I say take a case against this person, and they are the experts. So here we have a great example of Wright's scattergun approach to lawsuits, where he simply identifies the target, onto him makes up the case, and Calvin foots the bill. Arthur, this method is just indicative of the way Craig Wright goes about things, but for me it also shows what's wrong with this part of the British legal system, that he very nearly got away with it. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. But um, firstly, I don't think it ever exactly happened like this because yeah, no lawyer and not even the most incompetent one at uh, Ontier, and there are quite a few of them employed at our <laughs> offices, I'm afraid, those lawyers will, will never start uh, writing a freewheeling uh, through a witness statement uh, without any consent of their client, of course. And, and of course, also at all times, a witness statement is signed by the witness, which implies that uh, he or she uh, read the full statement and agrees with every word uh, of the content. So yeah, Craig can suggest whatever he wants uh, to push uh, to push responsibility away, but I'm sure that no judge will ever buy that. Yeah, going back to uh, to what appears to be wrong with the UK uh, legal system, and I'm a bit of an outsider because I'm not in the UK, uh, as we all know. But it, it appears to me that the UK legal system, they favor the rich and famous who are by nature and by nurture more part of uh, public life and therefore are more wider scrutinized for their public wheelings and dealings. Mm-hmm. And the UK legal system is on the hand of the, the, these people because with their money they can easily start slap 
lawsuits and slap that means and I looked it up in uh, Wikipedia because I only know the word slap uh, to be honest but slap is short for uh, strategic lawsuits or litigation against public participation and these are lawsuits that are intended to censor intimidate and silence critics by burdening them with the cost of a legal defense until they abandon the criticism or opposition so it, it, it appears to me that the, the freedom of speech that we know in a lot of countries and I presume also in, in the UK, uh, but it is in the UK of a lower value as, uh, yeah, I'm not sure if I could, should call it like this, but it looks like the right to intimidate and censor is, is yeah, on a higher level. And what is pretty weird in the UK too, is that they have this dingle rule that says that other and comparable opinions expressed by others and also supported by evidence, they are not allowed to be brought into the case. And yeah, there is something to say for that, to be fair, uh, as each case should be judged on its own merits. Mm -hmm. But when the merit is this individual is lying and cheating and a plethora of people have found it out already in the past and uh, no one is seriously doing uh, something so far. And meanwhile, uh, the reputation of the person uh, that claims there is libel going on is uh, below zero already in the meantime. So what harm? can Peter do to a reputation of someone with no reputation left at that point? Mm. So, yeah, I have mixed feelings about that uh, too. It's worth taking a moment here to look back at the rationale behind Wright starting this case in the first place and his accusations that McCormack's tweets damaged his, quote, personal reputation for honesty and ethical conduct and that damage went to the heart of his professional reputation. If Craig Wright gave two shits about his professional reputation, he wouldn't be sending garbage like this out to conference organisers in the first place, let alone dismissing their opinions when they eviscerate him. There's no tweet in the world that could have done more damage to Wright's reputation than he has wreaked on it himself here. As for his personal reputation for honesty and ethical conduct, I don't have the words to describe how much of an insult that is to people that exhibit superior levels of honesty and ethical conduct than Craig Wright, like oil company executives or Lance Armstrong. Arthur, this case was never about reputational damage. It was all about Craig Wright scoring a win, wasn't it? Yeah, slap. We just talked about it. Troll hunting uh, to bankrupt people, uh, as uh, Calvin Ayer literally called it in one of his tweets. With the conference nightmare over for Wright, we were then treated to some of the greatest hits from Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt's assassination of him during the Kleiman case, with Ms Evans using various of Judge Reinhardt's accusations against him. Such accusations included statements from Wright that were not backed up by any evidence, giving perjurious testimony and fraudulent documentation, and everything else from that ruling that we hold so dear. Wright's argument was that the jury decided that, no, I had not committed fraud, I had not done any of that, which of course does not change what Judge Reinhardt experienced over months of dealing first-hand with Craig Wright. Later in proceedings, Wright tried to claim that cryptographic proof is less convincing than knowing the history of Bitcoin when trying to decide on the identity of Satoshi Nakamoto, saying, Very simply, the arguments put forth are ones that I will not accept, which is, you need to sign keys. My answer is, I can bring forth people, people who were there in 2008, people who dealt with me while I was creating it. It was not as secret as everybody makes out. 
not only family, people who are senior level executives in Australian banks, government officials in Australia, people in a number of departments. Their answer is that is not real evidence. My answer is very simple. Owning a digital file is not evidence. Actually bringing someone and having them stand and having them go over the history of Bitcoin is evidence. I was very happy to do that. I still am. Arthur Wright famously claimed that he destroyed all evidence of him being Satoshi in 2010 when he no longer wanted to be associated with it. But you don't get to play this both ways. You don't get to play the remorseful inventor and then in the absence of any evidence because you destroyed it, produce all these people, you know, all these all these family members that can back up the story you've told them, none of whom come with any documentary evidence, by the way. With that in mind, what are we to make of Craig Wright's offer here? Craig Wright wants to turn you into a dumb fuck as soon as possible by <laughs> spamming your brains with with his nonsense and then deceive you into thinking, yeah, makes sense, sound very intelligent actually. <laughs> you have to understand what's going on here. His reasoning is always backwards, as in uh, he needs to find excuses why things happened or not happened or are conflicting with what we know about the real Bitcoin history and Satoshi's role in, in the history. And then it becomes quickly obvious that there's always a cringe and an uncomfortable feeling uh, around his excuses. So for example, uh, th there might be a good reason why the real Satoshi uh, Nakamoto would destroy all the evidence of being the inventor of Bitcoin. So he becomes harder, if not impossible, to find. So that part would uh, potentially make sense to me. Mm -hmm. But the cringe is starting when Craig Wright explains that he left as a Satoshi in disgust in 2010 because of Silk Road and drugs and child trafficking and uh, etc. That, that type of stuff that, that got associated with Bitcoin uh, at that time. Yeah, but there it stops for me because in all the content that we know from the real Satoshi up to April 2011, when uh, when we had the last emails from uh, from him to uh, Gavin Anderson and Mike Hearn, etc., yeah, we have never even uh, found the slightest hint that these things remotely bothered the real Satoshi Nakamoto. So that's where 99% of the Bitcoin OGs uh, who were around in the 2008-2011 uh, era immediately feel it is getting itchy in places on their body where they cannot reach. <laughs> it, it, it doesn't feel right. And, and his nonsense always has red flags all over. It's interesting that you talk about what him uh, leaving in disgust because of Silk Road and drugs and child trafficking, etc., but he was being paid in Liberty Reserve dollars, which was set up purely for the purpose of facilitating these kind of people and their doings. So that's just completely um, contradictory, isn't it? Of course it is. And you will notice that over the history of Craig Wright in, in his backdated history, you will always see him using shady exchanges in Russia and having to do with things that, that end up being um, taken from the face of earth for money laundering. And, and, and the thing that you just mentioned is an, uh, is an example of it. And um, yeah, talking about uh, Craig uh, offering to talk about Bitcoin while bringing in uh, witnesses as uh, evidence. Oh my God. <laughs> That's where a new level of cringe is uh, starting. <laughs> Because Craig doesn't know anything about Bitcoin at all. Uh, looking at his uh, videos and his uh, his articles, it's oh, 
horrible. <laughs> uh, he completely messes up uh, the history of Bitcoin. For example, he puts a chat between Eric uh, Voorhees and Satoshi in 2008. <laughs> well, Eric Voorhees only knew about Bitcoin in May 2011. <laughs> and another hilarious example is when uh, Craig on several occasions uh, explained that uh, Microsoft patched Tuesday, uh, which is a single date in any given month when Microsoft uh, executes a global uh, delivery of software patches. Then Craig starts claiming that uh, this patch Tuesday made his Bitcoin network stop and go haywire on January 3, 2009. Okay, <laughs> so after the Bitcoin Genesis block on that same day, it took six days for block one to form. As Craig, he said, <laughs> had to build a new Bitcoin network between three, uh, January the 3rd and January 9. But then you find out that Microsoft Patch Tuesday was not on January the 3rd in that month of uh, 2009, but on January the 13th. So 10 days later, completely outside any Genesis block and block one, uh, whatever. <laughs> so yeah, it's oh, cringe, 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 cringe all over. So, and, and it's the same story with the witnesses that we have seen so far who were yeah, supposedly there when Craig Wright uh, supposedly created Bitcoin. And we know a massive amount of conflicting info uh, from them. Lost uh, USB sticks or not lost USB sticks. Uh, that is a story uh, connecting to uh, Stephen Matthews. Uh, and another story about Stephen Matthews uh, is that he didn't even know about uh, Craig and Bitcoin before 2011. And then suddenly he pops up in interviews and he says that he knew a lot of things uh, dating back to 2007 and 8 when he had a draft white paper and things. It, 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 Oh man, it's crazy, crazy all there. I could go on and on about this. <laughs> Wright went on to deny the suggestion that Cavanaugh had a vested interest in funding Wright's lawsuits and that the infamous troll hunting tweet was not aimed at goading someone into the crosshairs before Ms. Evans quizzed Wright on why he had not pushed for default judgment when the option was open to him at the very start of the case. So I suggest to you, Dr. Wright, that had your complaint about the defendant's tweets been genuine and born of your feeling of great distress and embarrassment, then you would have welcomed entering judgment against Mr. McCormack without a fight? No, you really do not know me then. I spent 11 years in a court case before I finally won. I fight. When people get me angry, I never back down. I am a legal scholar. I am a member of the Society of Legal Scholars. I know how much, or rather how little, a default judgment is really worth. I'm completing my PhD in law this year. All I have to say is, I know how little a default judgment is worth. He would just get it overturned anyway. The courts, when it is a litigation without a solicitor, are very reticent to leave those things stand. I had no interest in a default judgment. I still do not. So here we have Craig Wright saying that, I know how little a default judgment is worth which is exactly the kind of judgment he got against Cobra Bitcoin that he and all the BSV fraternity lauded from the mountaintops. Wright also tried to revise history when talking about the 2015 contract with Calvin Eyre, Stephen Matthews and Robert McGregor. The intention was to document the foundation of Enchain. Enchain now has close to 2,000 patents and it has people on three, maybe four continents and it's growing. It has sister companies in lots of areas. The aim of the agreement was to document the creation of that corporation, just like documenting the birth of Google. Arthur, 
That sounds like bullshit to me. <laughs> totally bullshit. Because, of course, uh, th- when you have read The Satoshi Affair by Andrew O'Hagan, it, that whole end chain, of course, is mentioned. And so far, I have not found yeah, any lie, any discrepancy uh, between uh, what really happened uh, back then in 2015-16 and what he wrote down in his uh, Satoshi Affair uh, long form. So I, I consider it a very truthful uh, story. Andrew O'Hagan wrote that uh, he received an email from uh, Jimmy Wynn trying to uh, uh, hire him back, I think it was somewhere in October or November 2015, when uh, he contacted Andrew O'Hagan. It was all about the life story rights of uh, uh, Craig Wright that, were, uh, that he was trying to sell and uh, bring under the attention of the wider audience that uh, yeah they were ha- having uh, the Satoshi story in uh, in their hands. Now, then you talk about the, the draft in June 2015, where he got this uh, 15 million and 1 million for his life story rights, and then uh, roughly half a year later, uh, that had not changed at all. He's changing the narrative here as he does again. He's re- revising history. And I'm assuming he's doing that because he doesn't want to be accused, as we've accused him of, because it's true, of having an incentive to come out as Satoshi. Because if he says, oh, I was paid to come out as Satoshi, then that's going to look bad for him, as we know it does. But if he says, oh, no, I was paid to document the start of N-Chain, that tries to divest him of any responsibility, doesn't it? That is what he is probably uh, trying to do, yeah. Talking of the 2015 deal, we also got a nice little insight during this trial into how Wright's deal was structured, with Wright receiving 250000 Australian dollars if he was publicly announced as Satoshi Nakamoto before 31st of December 2016. Wright said that the deal did not go through and that the agreement was cancelled. Arthur, what are the merits of this claim? Was it cancelled or did he get that money? Yeah, we cannot put uh, our fingers on that uh, yet. It it might be true, but I'm not sure, as Craig makes up a lot of stuff. But what we do know, there was this draft deal of some uh, roughly 15 million in June 2015. And in that deal, uh, 1 million dollar was mentioned for the life story rights. Actually, that whole amount of 250,000 dollar was not mentioned at all. So yeah, it's it's an interesting anecdote, uh, nevertheless, n- knowing that Craig uh, doxed himself to Wired Gizmodo in December 2015. Coincidence? Who knows? I also think we learn a lot about Craig Wright here, in that he had the chance to win this case very early on, back in 2019, with a default judgment. But it was never about the victory, it was about humiliation and bankruptcy. Let's not forget what he said about the case against the developers, which was supposed to be about recovery of stolen Bitcoin. I will personally hunt down every dev until they are broken, bankrupt and alone. If this was about his reputation being damaged, he would never have let it get this far. He would have ended the case when he had the chance, safe in the knowledge that he had his bragging rights, or so he would have claimed, and could chalk up another courtroom victory. Instead, he's pursued this like a vendetta, but the fact he's boasting about how many conferences he's attended this year shows that his reputation has seemingly suffered no long-term damage at all. Would you say that's a fair way of looking at things? Yeah, I can agree with that. Craig is out to 
destroy. We know quotes from him uh, declaring a nuclear Armageddon that he has sent uh, by some god uh, to bring destruction in the crypto industry, things like that. So I consider him a bit of a uh, megalomaniac. Wright also, during the trial, repeated something he has said a few times in the past, and which is about as contentious a claim as you can get. I do not lie. My problem is actually the opposite. When my wife asks me things, even, that get me in trouble, I tell her. One part of being autistic is that we are terrible liars, as in not we do it a lot, we are not practically... The only way I can lie is to not tell someone something, not to actually tell it to their face. I can just walk off and not talk, which is about the closest I get. If someone asks me a question and I cannot answer them, that is my way of lying. Arthur, what's your opinion of Craig Wright's opinion of his lying? (laughs) I can be short about this. He's even lying about his lying. (laughs) He's lying about lying. Isn't it fantastic? Yeah. Yeah. The afternoon session saw McCormack sworn in and answer a few questions on the reach of his podcast and Twitter account, with Wright's representative, Adam Wolanski, trying to cast him as an influential person in the Bitcoin and crypto world, for obvious reasons. McCormack argued against this, calling himself a rising star as opposed to established figures. The day ended on a light-hearted note, with McCormack having to explain the term rufflecopter to the court, as well as the meaning behind the term jog on. The following day saw the core of the argument against McCormack, with Wolanski suggesting that McCormack deliberately destroyed Twitter impressions data contrary to his duty as a prospective party to litigation to preserve all relevant information. The result of this was that Wright could not accurately assess engagement or harm, which makes his claim to have suffered serious reputational damage somewhat moot, if you ask me, but there we are. McCormack argued that impressions were not an accurate metric by which to judge audience reach, and that the agency for which he previously worked ended up ditching them. For the record, Twitter impressions show how many times a tweet has been seen or a podcast downloaded, but it does not break that figure down into the number of people. This means that if the same person has read a tweet or downloaded a podcast episode more than once, it counts as multiple impressions. One key factor in Wolanski's handling of McCormack's cross-examination was, as you may already have guessed, down to the definitions of certain important terms. For example, one court witness reported that Wolanski was hampered by a lack of clarity in the language he used, for example, using metadata and analytics interchangeably when they mean very different things. McCormack explained how he installed auto-deletion tool TweetDeleter on the advice of Jeremy Welch, chief product officer at cryptocurrency exchange Kraken, who himself used it, and argued that he didn't know that it also deleted the metadata associated with that tweet, such as the number of likes and retweets, which of course are key engagement metrics. McCormack denied the implication that he'd used the bulk delete function as an active process to maliciously delete tweets, arguing that as far as he was concerned, he was deleting the tweets and that Twitter deleted analytics. He also added that he was under the assumption that Twitter retained analytics even if the original material had been deleted, something he said was standard, and adding that there was no way he knew that the impressions data was separate. Amazingly, Wolanski accused McCormack of withholding analytics data from Ontier, even though it was Ontier themselves that arranged for a company to go to McCormack's house and take the information they wanted from McCormack's laptop. 
McCormack seemed baffled by the suggestion that he had held anything back, stating, I think it might be something that has to be done by a third party. As I said, the chap came to my house with software. I had to leave him with my laptop and my computer, and he did the full screenshot and screen grabbed through every piece of software that I had as listed by Ontier. I afterwards signed that it is done. If you are telling me something is not done in this, then my assumption is there is a breakdown in the process from what you have requested and the delivery. Things hit rock bottom for Wolanski when he got so confused about the terminology that the judge had to intervene when he mixed up analytics and tweets one too many times. The rest of the afternoon's discussion focused around definitions about engagement of McCormack's tweets, with McCormack admitting that he did ask for some tweets to be retweeted in order to expand their reach, but hitting back on claims that his engagement rate was extremely high, citing the number of bots present on Twitter and the pro-right responses to his tweets that Ontier could not include in its anti-right statistics. McCormack's personal finances were then discussed, as was the apparent description of himself as a tech titan. As McCormack pointed out, however, this was a satirical list that also included mummy blogger and dolphin trainer. Wolanski then took McCormack to task over the livestream, arguing that McCormack knew that the episode would be available after the broadcast, thus widening its reach. McCormack argued against this, however, saying that in his experience, the quality of a live stream did not lend itself to replication after the event, and that he personally would never countenance repurposing a live stream for a podcast. He also said that he wasn't aware the episode was going to be broadcast on YouTube until about five minutes before, shooting down the suggestion that he intentionally used the allure of YouTube as a way of attracting more people to the broadcast. With McCormack standing down, all that was left on the third day was closing arguments, before the case was taken away by the judge to rule on. The take on proceedings from the BSV community was muted, to say the least. This was partly because many of them, including Calvin Eyre and N-Chain godfather Robert McGregor, for more on him see Series 1, Episodes 3 and 4, were in Dubai for a BSV conference, to which Craig Wright flew once the court proceedings were over, no doubt to tell everyone how he had crushed it in court. CoinGeek's coverage of day one of the trial, which they headlined Satoshi Nakamoto on the stand, was a masterclass in glossing over the detail, with a piece stating that much of the morning was spent with counsel for McCormack, Catherine Evans QC, questioning the claimant. Given the narrow scope of McCormack's available defence, the questioning had something of a patchwork focus. The piece addressed the debacle over the pulled conferences by stating that the conferences themselves no longer have much relevance to the case. Dr Wright has withdrawn their mention from his pleaded case, apparently due to the fact that the conferences, and therefore the damage, are outside of English jurisdiction. No, that was down to the fact that he completely and utterly lied about them and was forced to withdraw them when he was rumbled. The piece continues. Nonetheless, Evans QC spent considerable time on this subject, ostensibly as a way to cast doubt over the plaintiff's credibility. Dr Wright was shown various bits of evidence which she says indicate Dr Wright was either not involved or had already been rejected. For example, time was spent on emails which contained feedback from conference organisers on papers submitted by Dr Wright for presentation and which had been rejected. She also pointed to a lack of evidence on the record which shows Dr Wright actually being disinvited from the conferences. 
Dr Wright's response was that much of his involvement with conference organisers was on a personal level and that it isn't unusual for him to connect with industry events via non-regular channels. That was it. No mention of the annihilation of Wright's academic writings. No mention of Wright supposedly getting the conferences in question confused or going on holiday when he was supposed to be attending one of the conferences he had complained about. No mention of the fact that his witness statement changed dramatically just days before the hearing when the new evidence came to light. And no mention of him accusing conference organisers of lying when they had never heard of him. If you were a CoinGeek reader, you would have received about a quarter of the day's actual events at best. There was a cursory mention of the troll hunting tweet, but only to eulogise Wright's I fight till the end line. He's a regular William Wallace, this one, riding into battle on the back of Calvinaire's money and protected by Ontier, his famous extortion racket. Sorry, legal team. The responses on Twitter to the CoinGeek piece were much more telling. Eyre was first to respond, of course, tweeting that There was harm to Craig. Latif told me last night that he held off contacting Craig until he won in Florida because of reputational concerns from the trolling Craig gets. This is a real issue. This referred to well-known tech developer Latif Ladid and is a story which, as anyone who followed the Johnny Depp vs Amber Heard trial will know by now, counts as hearsay and cannot be relied upon. One respondent to Air said that the reporting didn't sound too hot for Craig, to which Air shot back, Craig says he is satisfied with the day. Oh look, we were right. It only matters what the judge thinks, and let be clear, the judge thinks McCormack is a scumbag. This is about him stealing from Craig, and that is very clear to the judge. Arthur, we're used to Calvin Air's tweets by now, but it really does seem he's got his cases confused here. Yeah, I'm totally flabbergasted. It appears that Calvin had not been following this case very closely. What's, what's he talking about stealing from Craig? What is McCormack supposed to have stolen? <laughs> no idea. It beats me totally. As his legal team is making its closing arguments, Wright appeared on stage in Dubai to a rapturous reception from the 1,000 people in the room. Or 300, depending on your source and how many people the conference room actually held. Many expected the verdict in a matter of weeks, but June and then almost all of July passed without any sign of when it was coming. And then, finally, we had a date. Monday, August 1st at 12pm. Calvin Eyre tweeted about the forthcoming verdict on the Friday prior, saying, McCormack, of what's a guy got to do to get sued around here fame, to find out how much he owes Satoshi on Monday. Craig wins again because he is Satoshi. With the legal teams for each side receiving the verdict prior to the ruling, as is standard with British courts, it wasn't clear whether Eyre was tweeting with privileged information or just shooting out the usual guff like the spam cannon he is. However, Wright was also thought to be openly discussing the case on Slack, with multiple sources informing us that Wright had violated the court embargo, potentially putting him in contempt of court. McCormack, on the other hand, respected the legal process and wouldn't reveal anything going into the weekend. That's it for part one of this special episode of Dr. Bitcoin, The Man Who Wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Part two, where we cover the verdict and the fallout, will be with you in a few days, so please keep an eye on your podcast feeds. Trust us, it's worth the wait. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon.
You've been listening to Dr. Bitcoin, the man who wasn't Satoshi Nakamoto. Written by Mark Hunter, with additional material by Arthur Van Pelt. Editing and production by Mark Hunter. This has been a Contented Media Production.